listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Good morning once again. Welcome to Whitefields Community Church. We're so glad that you're here with us to worship the Lord uh, by song and by studying his word. Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter, conveniently located right after 1 Peter. That never gets old, right? Like I tried that, I've tried that a couple of times. I'm going to keep doing it. I get your pity laughs every time, which I appreciate. I really do. So it's right before 1 John. So you're looking in your Bible. You're looking, you know, 1 Peter right before that comes. Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and it's right before 1 John. If you're reading the Bible on your phone, we encourage you to use the Version Bible app. Really handy because in there, if you go into the menu, sign in, all that, you can go into the live events. And we've got some stuff on the screen. I've even got a couple links in there for you to follow this week that'll help you go deeper in the stuff we're studying. So if you use that, go ahead and just sign into that and you'll have the notes on the screen and a few extra links that you can follow as well. So in 2 Peter chapter 1, and we're currently in a series on Sunday mornings in which we're We're calling it Pilgrim's Progress, and this is our verse-by-verse study through the books of 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st and 2nd Peter, and here in 2nd Peter, Peter is addressing some topics and some issues which are extremely relevant to us today, and I think you're going to see that over the next three weeks as we continue through this book, uh, studying chapter by chapter, verse by verse through 2nd Peter, just extremely relevant stuff, the exact kind of stuff that people deal with and wonder about when it comes to Christianity and the Bible today. So this is really relevant stuff. This week, we're going to be talking about the question of how can we be sure that Christianity is even true? That should be pretty important to us, right? We don't want to just believe in fables and made up stuff. How do we know that this is true, that we're on the right track by following Jesus? That's what we're going to talk about. And so to do that, let's read our text, which comes from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but God spoke, or men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we ask this morning as we read it, as we study it, as we seek to apply it to our lives, Lord, give us malleable, formable hearts. Lord, help us to not be people who who are stuck in our ways, but Lord, help us to be people whom you can teach and transform and take to the places you want to take to. Let us be people, Lord, who are able to be moved by your spirit as you propel us along. So Lord, would you show us where you want us to go, how you want us to respond to your word today as we study it. We just give ourselves to you and we we give you our attention, our ears, our hearts, and our minds as we study your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, you know, I remember it like it was yesterday, even though it was several years ago now. 
Rosemary and I had just had our first child, Nate. He, at the time, was about six months old. And we were living in Hungary where, um, you know, a few years prior to this time, we had planted a church in northern Hungary, and I was pastoring for a couple years at that point. And things were going well in the church. At the time, I remember I was teaching through the Gospel of Matthew. And I'm not sure exactly when it happened or how it happened, but at some point, I remember teaching through Matthew on a Sunday and having just these like unavoidable doubts in my mind. As I was speaking, right, I'm speaking these things, and at the same time speaking them, I'm struggling with these questions like, wait a second, how do I know this is even true? Like, how do I know that this isn't just something that somebody made up? How do I know that this isn't just a myth or a legend? Or maybe there really was a historical person named Jesus, but all the stuff in the Bible about him has just been kind of exaggerated and embellished. And maybe when you die, nothing happens, actually, right? And like, how can we know? None of us have ever died. So how can I know that the Bible, what it says, is actually true? After all, right, there are a lot of other religions and beliefs out there in the world who say different things. So how can I know that this one is the one and only correct one? And so those questions started to kind of like be in my mind as I was teaching the Bible, which was, uh, you know, an interesting experience. But I figured I better get this stuff figured out pretty fast because I'm a pastor, right? And if I want to continue being a pastor in good conscience, well, I need to make some decisions. Is this really true? Is this the stuff of just legend? Like, how do I know it's true? Because I don't want to stand up here and just tell you something that's maybe true or maybe not. And so I began a journey, and and to make a really long story short, that journey included enrolling myself back in school. I went back to school. I went and enrolled myself in a university to study religion and philosophy and the Bible and Christianity at the university level. And so I've been doing that now. It's coming up on like Oh gosh, it's been over 10 years now that I've been studying different degrees in in school related to religion, philosophy, the Bible, history. And here's what, what I've come to through this. All the evidence, everything that I've read and learned has left me in this place today where more than ever, I believe that not only is the Bible trustworthy, but the gospel story about Jesus is absolutely true. You can go to the bank on it. It, it is true. So, But look, just as I wrestled with those questions, is this even true? How do we even know, right? I know that a lot of people wrestle with those questions. Maybe even some of you are here today and you're like, well, yeah, I mean, I don't tell people that, but yeah, I am wrestling with those questions. I had a friend of mine call me this week on the phone and they have a family member who grew up with them, you know, in a Christian home. And now this family member claims that he's an atheist because he says, because Christianity is just a fairy tale. Right, it's just a fairy tale. And, and this friend was asking me, what do I say to this family member of mine? How, how do I address this claim and these, this topic? And what I told this, this friend of mine, I said this, you know, here's how I would respond to your, your family member. I would tell them this, bro, I am right there with you. I'm right there, I'm, I'm right, we're, we're on the same page because here's why. If Christianity isn't true, then count me out. If it's just a fairy tale, if it's just a legend, if it's just a fable, even if it's a good one, count me out because I don't need false hope. I don't need to base my life on something that's not even true. But first, if it is, you know, not true, well then yeah, count me out too. But before we do that, let's look into it, right? Let, let's, 
Let's look into this and figure out, is this a fairy tale or is this true? And to do that, how are we going to do that? Well, we're going to need to investigate, aren't we? We're going to need to look at some of the evidence and we're going to need to see where the evidence leads and what the evidence shows. That's only fair, no matter where, where you stand on the issue. And that exactly is what Peter does here in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. He's saying, look, I don't expect you to just take my word for it on all this stuff I'm saying about Jesus. Let me give you some reasons why you can know that this is legit, that this is true, and that this is something you can go to the bank on. So let's, let's talk about that. The title of today's message is, Dawn is Coming. Dawn is Coming. And there are three big issues that Peter addresses in this section, which we're gonna look at as we move through this passage verse by verse. And they're incredibly relevant for us, and here's what they are. Number one, dawn is coming. Dawn is coming. Number two, what makes Christianity unique? And number three, why you can trust the Bible. So dawn is coming, what makes Christianity unique and why you can trust the Bible. Let's begin on, under that first heading, dawn is coming. Peter begins this section in verse 16 by telling us this. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just some setting here. Peter is writing this letter during a time of great persecution against Christians in the Roman Empire. Peter was in Rome, which was the epicenter of this persecution that took place. And he is writing this letter to all Christians living throughout the Roman Empire, many of whom, like him, are suffering and being persecuted for their faith. It was a difficult time to be a Christian. And during this great persecution, this is the time when Paul the Apostle was arrested and killed by having his head cut off. Christians were being arrested and brought into the Colosseum where people would watch as a form of entertainment as they were ripped to shreds by wild animals and by gladiators. And this was entertainment, right? People would jeer at them. And so that's what it meant to be a Christian at this time. At times they would gather Christians and they would drown them in mass in, in lakes. Okay, and so Peter is writing to Christians who are facing these kinds of situations. These are real situations they're facing. It's a difficult time for Christians who are around the world. And guess what? If those kinds of things are happening, what starts to happen to you? Your faith is tested. You're confused. You're scared. It's putting your faith to the test, you know? You start asking questions. God, if you love us, why are you letting this happen to us? We gave our lives to you and this is what we get in return. We get ripped to shreds by wild animals. We get drowned in lakes. We get our heads cut off. That, that's what we get in re return for giving our lives to you. You can imagine they were confused. They were hurting. It was a difficult time. And so Peter himself at the very epicenter of this persecution in Rome is writing to encourage these people by reminding them of the hope of the gospel. He's reminding them, guys, let's remember what we signed up for. Let's remember what the hope is that we have in Jesus. And Peter's point here is to say this, in Jesus, the hope that we have is not the hope of a more comfortable life here and now. The hope that we have is the hope of a new day, that there is indeed a new day coming and the darkness of this present age will be driven out by the light of God's glory. That is the hope of the gospel. That is the hope of the gospel. And it's not just a fanciful hope. It's not just a myth. It's not just a fable. It's not just something we made up so we can make ourselves feel better and cope with the, the difficulties of life. No, this is a hope we can be sure of. And this hope, when you have it, it gives you the strength to face whatever challenges life might bring your way. So what is this hope that we have in Jesus? It is the promise that dawn is coming. Dawn is coming. It's the promise of a new day in which things will be different. 
in your life right now, I don't know what's going on, but maybe in your life right now, things seem dark. Maybe in your life right now, things, you're suffering, you're dealing with sorrow. But because Jesus came, this is the message of the gospel, because of Jesus' power, Peter says, and Jesus' coming, you can be sure that the darkness will not reign forever. You can be sure that death will not have the last word. You can be sure that sickness and pain and suffering and heartache will not have the last word. Because of Jesus, because he came, because of what he did, dawn is coming and there is a new day on the horizon. This is the hope of Christianity. He tells us in verse 19, we have the prophetic word, which is like a lamp shining in a dark place until the new day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. The morning star arises in your hearts. Here's what's interesting. One of the names that Jesus gives himself is he calls himself the bright and morning star. The bright and morning star. Now, that term, the morning star, is the name which is given to the last star you can see in the sky during dawn. If you've ever, you know, been awake before the sun comes up and you watch the sun come up, here's kind of what happens. Before the night ends, you stop being able to see the stars in the sky, right? Because the, you know how the earth rotation works and all that, is that the sky gets lit up so that you stop being able to see the stars in the sky. They start to fade and disappear, even while it's still dark out. And what's left is that final star in the sky is called the morning star. And depending on where you are in the earth, actually sometimes the morning star is not even a star. It's the planet Venus. But the point is that it's the last star you see in the sky right before the dawn breaks. And Jesus says, that is who I am. I am the bright and morning star. My coming, what I did is the sign that the new day is about to dawn, that we are on the cusp of a new time, a new day. And what will this new day be like? Well, the Bible tells us in many places, but I think most, most succinctly and poignantly, it's found in Revelation chapter 21, where it tells us this, that there will be a new heavens and a new earth, and the old heavens and the old earth have passed away. And it says that the dwelling of God will be with man, and he will reign forever. And it says this, at that time, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And then he says, and behold, I make all things new. The new day is coming. It is the day when God's kingdom, which means God's reign, right? God's reign will be full and it will be complete. And then what that means is this. There is a day coming when everything will be the way that God intends it to be. Everything will be the way God intends it to be. In other words, there is a day coming when God is going to make all things right. God did not create us for darkness and death. He didn't create us for sickness and pain. Those things are a result of sin. Sin entering the world, which is a, a foreign agent, which has come and has created tares in God's good creation. But the good news of the gospel, the hope that we have in Jesus, is that it won't always be this way. It won't always be this way. Dawn is coming. There is a new day on the horizon. Because Jesus came, because he was victorious, he defeated the power of sin and death and the devil by giving his life as a sacrifice. Colossians chapter one, verse 13, it says this. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. The hope that we have 
as Christians, the hope that Peter wants us to be reminded of. He wants all of his readers to be reminded of as we go through life, as we face the difficulties of life. It's the great hope that we have in Jesus, the promise that no matter how dark it seems today, dawn is coming. The darkness will not last forever. It's interesting that the Bible uses this metaphor of dawn to describe where we are at right now in world history, in the history of the world. And here's why, because dawn has some unique characteristics. If you've been awake at dawn, you know you've experienced these characteristics. For example, during dawn, it's still nighttime, but the night is almost over, right? The night is almost over. At dawn, darkness and light are both present, right? There's light, but there's also darkness. They're both present, and yet neither of them are present in full force. The darkness isn't as dark as it used to be. It's been broken by the light, but the light is not as bright as it is going to be. See, and this, Peter says, this picture of dawn, what you experience at dawn, that is what we are experiencing right now. That is where we are at right now in human history. The fact that Jesus has come into the world, it means that the reign of darkness has been broken and soon a new day will begin. That is the hope and the promise of the gospel. That is the hope that Peter wanted to remind his readers of as they were facing hardship and difficulty in their lives. And that is a hope for me and you as well. No matter how dark it might seem right now, because of Jesus, there's a new day coming. One day, suffering, hardship, pain, sickness, and death will cease forever for those who have received this gift of salvation and grace through Jesus Christ. And the question is, How do we know, though, that that's actually true, right? That's the hope, but how do we know that that's actually true? It all sounds awesome, right? Like, who wouldn't want that? No more death, no more suffering, no more sickness, no more pain. But how do we know that all this stuff about Jesus isn't just something that we all just made up to make ourselves feel better, to cope with life? Well, that's a good question. And Peter answers that question beginning in verse 16. And here's what I want you to notice. Peter doesn't just say, well, you're just gonna have to take my word for it. He doesn't just say, believe me and don't ask any questions. He doesn't call us to have blind faith and just believe what he says because he said it. Instead, he points us to a few reasons why we can be confident that the hope of the gospel is legitimate and trustworthy. So that brings us to our second point, what makes Christianity unique? In explaining to us why we should believe the gospel, Peter points out two things which make Christianity unique. Number one is eyewitness accounts. Let's talk about that, eyewitness accounts. Peter says in verse 16, when we told you about Jesus, that wasn't a a cleverly devised myth. It wasn't a fable. It wasn't a, a legend or a fairy tale. He says, rather, we were eyewitnesses of this stuff. We saw his majesty. We saw his glory. I saw it with my own eyes. You want to know how I know that Jesus is, is the real deal? How do I know that the gospel is actually true? Here's why. I saw Jesus' majesty with my own eyes. See, here's just one of the things that makes Christianity unique, which sets it apart from all other religions and philosophies and belief systems in the world is this. The Christian gospel uniquely is based on historical events. Historical events that either happened or they didn't. Okay, they're they're verifiable. The majority of other religions are based on usually the claim of someone that they received a special revelation from God or or that they have some special insight into the universe and you're just gonna have to take their word for it because there's no way to check it or verify it. 
But Christianity, on the other hand, is based on events which were historical, verifiable. They took place in real time at real places that you can still visit today. And, and there were many eyewitnesses to these events. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is writing to the Corinthians and he reminds them, hey guys, here's how you can know that Jesus really rose from the dead. Because at one time, there were 500 people who all saw Jesus risen from the dead at the same time. You know, you remember, you know, years ago, even to this day, right, there were people who would deny the Holocaust. And so what did they do when people denied the Holocaust? They would get the people who had been in the Holocaust, who had the tattoos on their hands, who were there, who saw it, and they would bring them in and say, you can't deny this, this person's right here. Well, Paul's doing the same thing with Jesus' resurrection. He's saying, you deny the resurrection? I'll bring you 450, right? Like 50 of them had died or something by that point. But he goes, most of them are still alive. I'll bring them in here. And one by one, they'll tell you, yeah, I saw it. I was there. I, I saw it with my own eyes. See, these things didn't happen behind closed doors. These things didn't happen in secret. These things happened right out in the open for everybody to see. It was on record. And here's one thing to remember. These people who claimed to have seen Jesus do miracles, who claimed to have seen Jesus risen from the dead, what did they get in return for that? Did they get fame, fortune, notoriety, book deals? They get invited on talk shows, you know, to be guests? No. You know what they got in return for saying, I saw Jesus resurrected. I saw Jesus do this. I saw Jesus do that. They got persecuted. They got killed. They got chased out of their homes. They had to flee their homes. They became refugees throughout the world. Their spouses and children were tortured and killed. Now consider the fact that generally, right, leaders of religions have tended to get money, women, and power, right? But did the early Christians get that? No, they got the opposite of that, right? Like they got zero benefit from saying that Jesus, that they were eyewitnesses of Jesus' glory and yet they wouldn't stop talking about it. Now the one and only reason why someone would be so committed to that claim, even in the face of persecution and hardship, was if they had truly seen something that they couldn't deny. And Peter himself, as he writes this letter, he is the target of persecution. Not long after he finishes writing this letter, he himself was executed by the Romans because of his claim that Jesus of Nazareth, this man who the Romans had put to death, had risen from the grave and that he alone is Lord. Not Caesar, not pagan gods, but Jesus alone. Now the reason Peter had so much faith that, was, that enabled him to say, you know what, no matter what happens, I'm gonna continue telling this story. The reason why Peter was able to have so much conviction and confidence is because he had seen Jesus's glory with his own eyes. You know, so when people come and say, this Jesus stuff is just a myth, it's just a fairy tale, it's just a legend, Peter says, no way. I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. I was an eyewitness of Jesus's majesty. Now let me ask you, when was Peter an eyewitness of Jesus's majesty? Well, we could probably make a really long list of times when Peter saw with his own eyes the majesty of Jesus on display. Peter could list a bunch of stuff, right? He could say, I saw Jesus' majesty. I saw him heal a blind man. Majesty, right? I saw him walk on water. I saw him feed 5,000. I saw him resurrected from the dead. Majesty, those would all be examples of times Peter saw Jesus' majesty. But Peter says this, but you know what? You know when I saw Jesus' majesty on display in a way that settled the issue for me for good forever, once and for all? There was this one time when we were up on this top of this mountain and we saw 
Jesus transfigured before our eyes. Now what Peter's referring to is a story that's told in the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's told in all three gospels and it's called the transfiguration. And what happened was Jesus brought his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, with him up on top of this mountain. And there on the top of that mountain, Jesus was transfigured. They got a glimpse of his glory. He was bright and shining and radiant in his glory. And it says that there on the mountain with him, as he shone in glory, appeared Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah, the two greatest figures of the Old Testament. Respectively, they, re they represent the law and the prophets. Moses representing the law, Elijah being the greatest of the prophets. And, and the gospel account tells us, right, that Peter, James, and John are up there on the mountain and they see Jesus transfigured, they see Moses, they see Elijah, and Peter speaks up at this point and he says, Jesus, it's so good that we're here. Almost like, Jesus, you should be glad that we're here and here's why, because I have this awesome idea. Here's my idea. We're gonna build a memorial like me and, me and James and John, like the three of us. We'll create, we'll, we'll establish like a memorial up on this mountain to remember this moment, to commemorate this moment forever. That way people will always know about it. And he goes, and check out my idea, Jesus. Here's what we'll do. We'll build a section of this memorial for Moses, and then we'll build another section for Elijah, and we're even gonna build a section for you, right? Because Peter's like, Peter thinks he's being really generous to Jesus. He thinks he's being really complimenting him because he's saying, Jesus, that's right, I'm saying you are just as good as Moses. You are just as great as Elijah. You're like on the same level with those guys. And at that moment, this voice of God speaks from heaven and tells Peter to be quiet. Shut your mouth, Peter. That's what he says. He says, Peter, this is my beloved son whom I love and in him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Stop talking and listen to him is what he says. Essentially, this was a rebuke. God is telling Peter, Peter, this is my beloved son. How dare you put him on the same level as Moses and Elijah? He is infinitely greater. Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, they all spoke of him and pointed to him, right? Don't put him on the same level as those guys. By the way, and just so you know, in our next series, after we finish 2 Peter, we're gonna be studying First and Second Kings, which includes looking at the life of Elijah, so you're not gonna to wanna to miss that. But what's interesting is that here in Second Peter, Peter, he mentions this time that God spoke to him from heaven. And even though it was a rebuke for Peter, this, this moment of God speaking to him has become a precious memory, a precious memory in which God made it clear to him that Jesus is the Son of God and he should follow him. So in addition to all the miracles that Peter saw Jesus perform, in addition to the fact that Peter saw Jesus risen from the dead, this one instance sealed the deal for him. After that, he knew beyond any shadow of a doubt, Jesus is the Son of God, the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world. What makes Christianity unique is that it's based on historical facts which had eyewitness testimony. Now, the second thing that Peter points to for why we should believe that this stuff about Jesus is true is because of another thing that makes Christianity unique, and that is the prophetic word, the prophetic word. He says in verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. Now, this is interesting, again, because Peter's saying, 
Look, I had this experience. I'm telling you about this time when I saw Jesus glorified. I, I heard the voice of God. But you know what? There's something even better than that. Something that you should really look to. And this is the reason you should believe. You have the prophetic word. Now, what is it? What is the prophetic word? What he's referring to is what we call the Bible, right? The Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament and the New Testament. You and I have access to something that is even greater, even more certain than somebody's eyewitness testimony claiming that they saw Jesus transfigured and they heard the voice of God saying, this is him, follow him. He said, here's what's more certain. Here's what's more, what's a better foundation for your faith. Not just my testimony, but God's prophetic word. Did you know that one third of the Bible, one third of the Bible is made up of prophecies? One third, it's a lot. A third of the Bible is made up of prophecies, meaning that it talks about things which at the time of writing had not yet happened. And it said, here's what's going to happen. The Bible's pretty old. The, the oldest books of the Bible are over 3,600 years old. And so what's interesting is of that one third of the Bible that is prophetic in nature, most of those prophecies have been fulfilled already. And yet there are some prophecies which have not yet been fulfilled, right? The stuff about uh, the end times and the return of Jesus, which we're also gonna talk about as we go on here in, first, or in Second Peter. But there's a sense in which you could say, it's not just that one third of the Bible is prophecy, but the whole of the Bible is prophetic in nature. The whole of the Bible is prophetic in nature because the Bible is about the story of, is all about the story of how God is redeeming the world through a savior. And every book, every chapter, every verse, right? It plays into that big story. It's part of that big story, which is about God's redemptive work through Jesus. So when Peter talks about the prophetic word, he's not just talking about individual prophecies in the Bible. He's talking about the Bible as a whole, which together points us to Jesus and how God is saving us through him. And Peter says, this is how you can know that this stuff about Jesus isn't just pie in the sky, fairy tale stuff made up to make people feel better about life but that it's actually true and something you can base your life on. Here's how you can know. We have the testimony of God's word to prove it. The testimony of God's word to prove it. Now let's remember, Peter wrote this letter at the end of his life. And keep this in mind. He's writing this letter at the end of his life. By the time he wrote this letter, all four gospels were already written and they were being circulated through the churches. At this time, all of Paul's epistles had been written because Paul's dead at this point. Peter mentions Paul's letters. Actually, as we're going on in 2 Peter, you're gonna see Peter actually mentions Paul's writings as scripture later on in this letter. In other words, when Peter talks about the prophetic word of the Bible, the scriptures, he's not just talking about the Old Testament. He's also talking about most of what we know as the New Testament. And Peter tells us that the Bible, God's prophetic word, verse 19, he says, it is a lamp shining in a dark place. This is a picture which is taken from the Old Testament of God's word as a lamp. Maybe you know it, right? Psalm 119, verse 105, it says, your word, O Lord, is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It illuminates my way, it helps me see things clearly, and it leads us from darkness into light. And that brings us to our third and final point, which is this why you can trust the Bible, why you can trust the Bible. Now, there are a lot of reasons why you can trust the Bible. 
and we don't have enough time to go into all of them, but I will tell you this. Last year, we did a whole message on this, kind of going into a little bit deeper dive on some reasons why you can trust the Bible. I put a link in the sermon notes in the Bible app for that message so you can go and listen to it. Or if you you know, don't have that, you can just go to our church website and find the message. It's called, I Could Never Believe in a God Who Gave Us a Faulty Bible. I could never believe in a God who gave us a faulty Bible. Uh, I kind of go into some reasons why you can trust the Bible there. But Peter, here in this section, gives us two reasons. And since we're studying his letter, we're going to talk about those two. Here's the two reasons Peter gives us. Number one, fulfilled prophecies. Peter refers to the Bible as the prophetic word. And he says it is more fully confirmed than even the eyewitness testimony. In other words, the word of God is greater and more authoritative than personal experiences. Guys, we're we not anti-experience. We want you, I want you to experience God. But I will tell you this, your faith needs to be built on something more solid than just your subjective personal experiences. And here's why, because experiences fade, experiences vary. And what happens when you build your faith on experience is that what you, what you end up doing a lot of times is you end up you know, chasing experiences, trying to get back to that time when you felt that thing, when you really felt God. Guys, that's not something to build your faith on. I'm not against that. I, I, I pray and hope that you have those experiences. But we want to base our faith on something that is more sure, a sure foundation. We want to build our faith upon the word of God because God's word doesn't change. And his word is essentially, in his word, he has gone on record so that we can go back and check it. Right, so, so I used to live in Hungary, right? And in Hungary, there's a lot of bureaucracy and I used to have to deal with government offices all the time, either for, for the church stuff, you know, tax stuff, or, or I would have to deal with it for immigration things and, and like that. And I would help a lot of, we had missionaries who would come serve with us and help them with their immigration. And so there was so much bureaucracy in these government offices and it could be really frustrating because they would always just kind of, they, one person would tell you one thing, oh, you gotta go over here and talk to this person. And then they'd be like, no, no, don't talk to me. Talk to the same person you just came from. And they just kind of like play ping pong with you, you know, never really giving you an answer, just kind of trying to get you out of their hair. So they tell you something, even if it wasn't completely, you know, the complete answer. And it was really frustrating. But here's what I did. I learned a little trick that I started using and it helped me get a lot of things done a lot faster. And here's the trick that I would do. Is that somebody at the government office would tell me something and then I would ask them to write it down on a piece of paper and write their name next to it. And as soon as I started doing that, right, things got a lot smoother because here's the thing. When you don't have any accountability, you're fine just telling somebody whatever and getting them out of your hair. But when you have accountability, of course, you're going to be more careful about what you say because somebody can come back and they can check. There's, there's a, a way to, there's a record. And so what God has essentially done in his word is that he's given us a record. He's gone on record as, and made himself accountable. He wants us to be able to verify the things that he has said and prove that he has kept his word. Right throughout the Bible, but specifically in the book of Isaiah, God says this, you want to know the proof that I really am the one true God? Here's what it is. I will tell you the future before it happens, and then when it happens, you'll look back and you'll say, oh yeah, he told us that. We have a written record of it, and now we know that he really is the one true God. And he says that three times in just a couple chapters in Isaiah. Here's the proof that I am the one true God. I will tell you the future, and it will come to pass. So God is challenging us, in other words, to check his prophetic record. Check his prophetic record. So let me ask you, are there any prophecies about Jesus that we can look to to verify that he really is the Messiah, that he really is legit? Yes. 
there are 332 distinct prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah. And Jesus fulfilled 332 of them, right? So 332. Now, from a statistical point of view, the, the probability of one person in the first century being able, to, being able to fulfill all of those prophecies given hundreds of years prior to that it's astronomical. So there's a man named Professor Peter Stoner, and you can read his research online, but he, he you know, works as a statistician, and he tried to calculate what would be the uh, statistical probability of one person being able to fulfill even just a few of the most obvious, you know, most blatant prophecies about the Messiah from the Old Testament, stuff like where he would be born, how he would die, who his parents would be, things that he would do during his life, etc. And, and so Peter Stoner tried to run these numbers. You know, he had a system for it, how he would calculate it. And here was his calculation. He determined that the statistical probability of one man fulfilling all these prophecies in the first century in Israel was one to 10 to the 17th power. So 10 with 17 zeros after it, which is crazy. And, and to give you an idea how crazy that is, and that's just eight prophecies, by the way. Uh, how crazy that is. He said, okay, imagine you had that many silver dollars. One times 10 to the 17th power. If you had that many silver dollars, it would be enough silver dollars to cover the state of Texas in silver dollars two feet deep. And he goes, now just imagine that on one of those silver dollars, there was an X drawn. And then at random, you got one chance to pick one silver dollar in the entire state of Texas, two feet deep, and you pick that one. That's the statistical probability. Basically, it makes winning the lottery look like a sure thing. Except Jesus didn't fulfill eight prophecies, did he? He fulfilled 332 prophecies. So how do you know you can trust the Bible? How do you know it's not a fairy tale? Well, here's one reason. Because of the prophetic word which has been confirmed. Guys, this is why the Dead Sea Scrolls are a big deal. Because they date from over 100 years before Jesus. Which shows us that, that we can see that the Bible hasn't been changed, hasn't been altered. Those prophecies were written before Jesus was born and he fulfilled them. So we, we go on. The second reason Peter gives us for why you can trust the Bible is its incredible origin. Here's why you can trust the Bible. It's incredible origin. He says in verses 21 and 22, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Prophecy was never produced by the will of man, but by men who spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this is one of the few verses in the Bible that tells us how the scriptures came to us. And it tells us this, people were moved, carried along, propelled by the Holy Spirit. So when Peter wrote this letter, for example, it wasn't that like these eyes rolled back in his head and he just started moving like a robot without any control. No, it, through his personality, through his own thoughts and words, he was being guided by the Holy Spirit along the way. And this word carried along, it's interesting because in Greek, this is the word that describes how a ship is propelled by the wind, right? So the sails go up, the wind comes into the sails, and the wind pushes or propels that ship along. So the biblical writers, they essentially raised their sails to the wind of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit moved them to exactly the right words, the right messages that he wanted communicated. You know, the Bible wasn't written by one person or even by a group of powerful people. I heard somebody say recently that the Bible was written, you were like, you know, the Bible was written by Europeans in the Middle Ages as a tool for oppression. 
Okay, like so wrong on all points, right? Like exactly wrong. That's not true. The Bible was not written by Europeans. It was not written in the Middle Ages. And it was written for the most part by people who were oppressed and marginalized, okay? The Bible is not one book. It's 66 books written over the course of 1,600 years by 40 different authors, most of whom never met. It was written on three continents in three different languages. And yet, from all these disparate sources, the Bible comes together like pieces of a puzzle and forms one united picture, one united message. How's that possible? Because these people are carried along by the Holy Spirit um, as they wrote these words. So the unique origin of the Bible is one of the reasons you can be confident that it's from God. Okay, in conclusion, one of the big questions that people have about the Bible is this. Why is it that different groups of people read the same Bible and they'll interpret it differently. One group will say it means this, another group will say it means that. For the answer to that question, you gotta come back next week because that's what we're gonna look at in chapter two. So be sure to be here for that. We're gonna answer that question. It's a big one, guys. Like I said, there's a lot of relevant stuff in this, in this book. But here's one thing that's really important. Look at verses 20 and 21. The prophecies of scripture are not the work of men. That's what Peter says. And here's why it's interesting. Because all other religions, this is something that makes Christianity unique, all other religions basically say this. If you try hard enough, if you keep these rules good enough, if you do these things well enough and long enough, maybe you can save yourself. Maybe you can do enough that in the end you can save yourself. But the message of the Bible is completely different than that. It says something very unique, and here's what it says. You can never save yourself. God is too holy, and you and I are too flawed. It is impossible for you to save yourself. You can never be good enough. You can never do enough. And you say, well, that sounds like a bummer. And it's not a bummer because this is the good news of the gospel, guys. This is what makes Christianity unique. It's that you cannot save yourself, but here's the great news. God loves you. God loves you so much that he has done for you what you could not do for yourself. He came and lived the life that you should have lived. He died the death that you should have died in your place. He took the judgments so that you could have the hope, you could have the glory, you could have heaven. And the way to receive that gift is by faith. Faith in Jesus and what he did for you. Receiving it, believing it, admitting that you can't save yourself and thanking God for what he did for you in Christ to save you. It's by trusting in him, clinging to him as your hope for salvation and thanking him for what he did. God's word, it's the light in a dark place. It's the light that leads us to the light of the world, which is Jesus. It points to him, it reveals who he is, and it tells us what we should do in response, which is put our faith in him and surrender our lives to him. Peter told us, right, the scriptures were written by people who put up their sails and the Holy Spirit carried them along, propelled them to where God wanted them to go. Guys, the, the Holy Spirit is no longer inspiring scriptures like he was at this time, but the Holy Spirit is still propelling people to where God wants them to go. Let me ask you this. What is the Holy Spirit propelling you to do? What is the Holy Spirit propelling you to do? Peter has been telling us over and over, we're pilgrims, we're sojourners in this world. This world's not our home, and yet God had us, has us here for a reason. He has a purpose for your life. Your journey's not over yet, and I wanna encourage you. Put up your sails Surrender your life to him who gave his life for you and let the Holy Spirit propel you as you respond to the gospel, as you follow Jesus, and as you serve others. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and we ask that you would truly propel us by your spirit 
into the things you want us to do, into the ways you want us to go for your glory. Lord, help us that we would be receptive, that we would be on board, that our sails would be up. And Lord, we ask that you'd lead us. Help us, Lord, that we would have confidence considering these things that we have recorded for us here in Second Peter, that we'd have confidence in your word, in the promise of the gospel. And Lord, that promise, that hope would make us super bold as we go about this week. Lord, it would make us super confident no matter what we're facing. Thank you that no matter how dark it may be today, the new day is coming. And we cling to that promise because of Jesus. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.